Welcome to the Art of Dynamic Competence. I'm Susan Clark. Join me for a podcast where we explore how to best align ourselves with whatever situation we find ourselves in, allowing us to create success in changing times. Today, we're talking with Dr. Fiona Bettos-Jones, a psychologist from the UK and founder of the Cognitive Fitness Consultancy. She has over 35 years of experience in the field of cognitive fitness, exploring how to support leaders to think more effectively, what she calls thinking in the right ways at the right time. Fiona has worked with a wide range of leaders and consultants in the UK with a variety of cognitive tools she's developed, including thinking styles, a psychometric test that measures your preference for 26 different ways we think. Her research is also focused on defining authentic leadership and the development of a unique 360-degree tool that gets at the essence of authentic leadership skills. Since we found Fiona's interview to be jam-packed with great information, we decided to divide it into two parts. This is her first section. Well, welcome to the Art of Dynamic Competence, Fiona. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. Cognitive fitness is such an interesting field to be in. How did you get started in this field? Well, I think, you know, like a lot of people, I've always had an interest in what makes us the way we are. I'm very interested in understanding people's psychology. And I think I just got to a stage where I was wondering, well, how do we think? How am I different or similar to other people? And if this is of interest to me in my professional career and in my personal life, how that understanding be shared with other people in a way that will be useful for them. So it was part personal journey and personal understanding, which I think a lot of people have because a lot of us are motivated to understand ourselves and other people. And part of it was a pro-social desire, I think, to help other people on their journey, their psychological understanding, and ultimately on their spiritual journey as well, because I think, you know, all of these things are related And yet at the same time, you developed a really strong business focus as well in the work that you do. We spend a lot of our time at work. So just developing something that's useful to people personally has limited value. So I think I wanted to do both. I think I wanted to develop an idea that could help people in their professional lives, that would also help them in their personal lives, that was also something that they would be able to share with other people that they love, with their children, for example. So I think without knowing it, I was throwing pebbles into a pond. So the metaphor of pebbles into a pond is that, you know, and anyone who's ever done this, and I expect lots of people have, is they go on a pond, they scatter, and you have all of the these little waves, these little circles that interact with each other. So I think that's what I wanted to do, possibly without even realising. Having said that, when I was 27, I went on a personal development programme. And one of the questions was, what's your purpose in life? Why are you here? And I didn't know the answer to that. I knew that I was here to help other people in some way because I have a kind of belief, and I know not everybody's going to agree with me, some listeners will, that I think that we're all here to help other people and helping other people helps ourselves. 
And, and I'm talking about spiritual development as well as personal and professional growth. So I knew I was here to help other people, but I wasn't really quite sure what that meant. So I threw the question out to the universe. And of course, it's very popular now to talk about mission and purpose and the reason why we're here and having meaning in our lives. But, you know, I am talking more than 27 years ago <laughs> when it wasn't, it wasn't popular. It, it was a bit California to be honest, in the UK. You know, that's sort of the way that we would think about it. It was a bit out there. And it took six months for the response to come back to me. And the response has remained the same right from when the words appeared in my head. And it just sort of came to me that I'm here to help people recreate their futures in a safe and supportive environment. Now, of course, you know, when you're 27 years old, people don't expect you to know what your purpose is. And in a way, it's a bit strange. It was a bit odd. So I kept it to myself for many years. And it's only now uh, when I'm a bit older that it's easier to share it with people and I and it's a bit more sort of understood. So my way of helping people recreate their futures in a safe and supportive environment is to help them understand more about themselves and other people. And the way that I do that is through increasing their self-awareness around their thinking patterns, how the similar and different ways in which they think and how that relates to authentic leadership, how that relates to the way that we lead ourselves and other people. So that's how I do it. Wonderful. Well, you've had a lot of training in this to get to where you are today. Can you talk about what your training was that brought you to this place? Yeah, sure. So the training that I did initially, I expect a lot of people have heard about NLP, Neuro Linguistic Programming. In terms of, of self-development and professional development, there was Stephen Covey, there was Zig Ziglar was a yes. sales chap. Mm -hmm. I happened to be working in financial services at the time as a training and uh, development manager. So uh, he was popular in that environment, as was Tony Robbins, of course, was just beginning to become known. He was just sort of starting out. Uh, so he was very interesting to, uh, to listen to. Actually went and saw him when he was in London. London. So all of those kind of things. But of course, they're not professional academic qualifications. They're just ways that we can learn about ourselves. And it's very interesting. And of course, a lot of this information is now freely available on the internet, which wasn't really, <laughs> the internet didn't really <laughs> exist then. You know, younger people will think, well, you know, hey, what on earth is she talking about? But, you know, computers were only just becoming sort of invented that the ordinary people could use. So all the self-development tapes were on cassette tapes. They weren't, you know, DVDs hadn't been invented. Mm -hmm. So because I was in a professional role as a training and development manager or learning training and development manager, I was interested in accelerated learning and all of that kind of thing. In the UK, we have an institute called the Chartered Institute of Personnel and Development. So I took a two-year course to help me understand more about um, how people learn, about human resource practices and that kind of thing. And that was interesting, but it only took me so far. So a few years after that, I enrolled on a psychology degree. Because I was already working in the field and because I'd already developed thinking styles as a cognitive development tool, 
I kind of did things backwards. Now, <laughs> my mother said that I worked everything out backwards. She said I even came out backwards. So, you know, I was a, I was a breech birth. So, you know, technically I did come out in a rather peculiar way. So I had to take a psychology degree to understand what it was I'd invented. Right. And so, you know, that might sound a bit strange, but it's actually true. I designed and created this amazing tool. And NLP calls elements of cognitive style, it calls them the metaprograms because they're patterns that people use to think and make decisions. So that's the NLP definition. The psychological definition is that they are dimensions of cognitive style. Right. So they're measuring very similar constructs. It's just that the academic world accepts dimensions of cognitive style and metacognition because that's what it's familiar with. So metacognition is thinking about thinking. So thinking styles is a metacognitive instrument because it helps us understand the ways in which we think. Would you like to describe thinking styles? We'll go into it deeper later, but as you brought it up now, just so the audience knows what you're talking about. Okay, so thinking styles is what's called a psychometric tool or a psychometric instrument. So it's developed, if you like, scientifically. So you have to statistically work out which are the right questions to ask to accurately measure the dimensions of cognitive style. So thinking styles measures 26 types of thinking. These are subdivided into a sensory focus, a people focus, and a task focus. So the sensory focus, a lot of people would be familiar with, for example, and it's well known in education now. So VAK, visual, auditory and kinesthetic, is included in the sensory dimensions of thinking styles. So thinking styles measures these 26 dimensions of thinking, and it measures the degree to which people like and the degree to which people dislike thinking in these ways. So it recognizes patterns of thinking. And of course, these patterns of thinking relate to patterns of behavior. And they also relate to our values. In my experience, people's highest preferences for their their thinking styles are also the highest values. Right. And it's very easy uh, when you put people's preferences in rank order on a page to see whether they're predominantly people focused, predominantly task focused, or a mix of the two. It's funny, Fiona, because my most innovative work that I've done over the years was done the same way that you described it, where I would go out and create a new program, an educational tool or something. And then after you run it and you get a sense of how it's working, you then go to the library and you read about where the Mm. theoretical constructs are that then reinforce what you're doing. And that helps you then, of course, take it from an experiential learning to something that you can begin to test and show and document the success of what you're doing. I think it is truly the creative process often goes in that backward position. Maybe because of the way you were born, it was a predisposition (laughs) that you had. But it's really interesting that a lot of people I know who are highly creative tend to work in this fashion where they create and then they go look at how to then plug it into what the new thinking is that's going on. 
Absolutely. That would make perfect sense to me. You know, there's something about innovation and creativity, isn't there? Yes. You know, we have to, in some way, think outside the box. If I'd have taken a psychology degree before I developed thinking styles, I would never have developed thinking styles. What would be the reason for that, Fiona? That's interesting. Because I would be thinking within the paradigm of psychology. And I wasn't thinking within the paradigm of psychology. I was thinking outside the paradigm of psychology from the areas of uh, storytelling. So that's really where it came from. So once I'd got my psychology degree, I did my psychology degree part-time in the evenings. took me six years. There might be a slightly different structure in the States compared in the UK, but we have something called the Open University. Right. And it means that you can study at home in the evenings, part-time after you've done your regular job. Right. So that's what I did. So there were six modules and I did one module a year. And then by accident, after six years, I had a psychology degree. <laughs> I thought, great, that's, that's really cool. But you also went on to go ahead and get your PhD. Is that not correct? Well, again, I only got a PhD by accident. Now... <laughs> 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 I don't know how you got yours and um, probably you were very deliberate about it but you know I was fascinated with thinking styles and cognitive style and I found a university that was about oh I don't know 80 100 miles away and I discovered they're not very keen on it in the UK because a lot of people don't finish but I discovered that I could do a part-time PhD mm-hmm. uh, and I could do it Not exactly distance learning, but, you know, I didn't have to be on campus the whole time. So I could continue to work and I could do a part-time PhD. And then rather than doing a full-time one that would take three or four years, that's what happens in the UK, I could do a part-time one and I would have sort of six or seven years to complete it. So I enrolled and I thought that I would want to do something in the area of cognitive style. And actually, cognitive style and metacognition is where I started doing some, I did a literature review and I was looking at things. And then I came across authentic leadership. Fiona, would you like to define what authentic leadership is? Well, the way I define authentic leadership is learning to lead yourself so others choose to follow. That's lovely. Yeah. For me, authentic leadership is a bit like Twitter. People will choose to follow you if they like you and if they find that what you're giving them is of value, if they find it of interest. And the thing for me about authentic leadership is that it's what's called a meta style of leadership. Now, I actually live in a little stone house a mile away from where Sir Isaac Newton was born. So I'm sure, you know, so Isaac Newton and gravity and the apple falling off a tree and all of that sort of thing. So that's literally just down the road from where I live. So I think of authentic leadership as an apple tree. If authentic leadership is the apple tree, the apples on the tree are the different kinds of leadership. So charismatic leadership, heroic leadership, uh, transformational leadership servant leadership, inclusive leadership. We've got compassionate leadership now. We're using that in our National Health Service, for example. So, you know, I see authentic leadership as the tree. So the trunk and the branches and the leaves, and then all of these different kinds of leadership hang on the tree. Mm-hmm. You can have any kind of pro-social kind of leadership and still be an authentic leader. So let's go back now to getting your PhD, because I'm very intrigued with the research that you did, especially with the military leaders. 
Yes. Okay. So going back to the PhD, I started investigating cognitive style and then I came across an article that talked about authentic leadership in terms of its psychological elements and its philosophical elements. So the psychological elements being self-awareness and self-regulation and the philosophical elements being the ethical orientation that somebody has and then the ethical actions that they take. Right. And this really resonated with me because my psychology degree was in psychology with philosophy. Mm-hmm. And then I just read an article and it linked psychology with philosophy. Right. In an area where I already had an interest which was authentic leadership, this learning Mm -hmm. to lead oneself so other people choose to follow you. It's about being a role model to others. And of course, we're all in that situation. Every parent is in that situation. You know, every parent has to be a role model for their children because what we do, we give them permission to do. Right. So I completely dropped anything about cognitive style and I became fascinated by authentic leadership. You know, what is it? How does it work? How does it manifest itself? And I read a pile of articles, probably if you put them on the floor, they'd be three and a half foot high, Mm -hmm. you know, a whole meter of paper all around what is authentic leadership. And every person who talked about authentic leadership thought about it you know, from their own perspective. And at that time, there wasn't really that much research about what it actually was. I remember one author, he wrote about authentic leadership and he said, you know, authentic leaders are fit and then they like to do exercise mm-hmm. <laughs> because he was a mountain climber, to, you know, and he liked to ride his bike. Well, Actually, I have climbed a small mount in the UK, but I've only done it once. (laughs) You know, so that wasn't true for me. And he said, you know, authentic leaders will always return to their roots. Well, actually, that's not true for me either. So I thought, well, that's really interesting. The theory of authentic leadership may be different to the practice of authentic leadership. So I wanted to investigate that. And also the research that had been done on authentic leadership had used a student population sample. And, you know, we all use student population samples in research because they're easy, they're accessible. You know, they like to get involved, particularly if you pay them. But I didn't want to do that. I was absolutely determined that I would only do my research with real leaders. And I was fortunate enough to be invited to become involved with one of the UK's military forces, the Royal Air Force. And they wanted to use 360 degree feedback uh, within the service because, you know, historically all feedback had been top down. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, there hadn't even been any peer to peer colleague feedback. It had all been top down. And they wanted to sort of trial, if you like, some 360 stuff. So they invited me to become involved. And so I was really, really, really fortunate to be able to do my authentic leadership research with senior serving officers in the UK's RAF. And of course, I know that your brother is a war hero and he was a jet fighter pilot wasn't he yes he was yeah so he was the kind of person that I did my research with it was all areas of uh, RAF um, you know senior leadership so the people on the ground as well as the people in the air and I started doing this research I fell in love in a way with my authentic leadership research 
I had a peculiar pattern of working because my daughter was still very young. So I used to put her to bed about 7, 7.30, and I would go to bed with her. My husband was a management consultant and he was working away. He wasn't at home for the majority of the time. So I would put my daughter to bed at 7.30 and go to bed with her. And then I would wake up at about one o'clock. I would sneak downstairs. Um, <laughs> I would light the fire. I would light the candles and I would sit and I would read articles on authentic leadership. I would do my research. I would write my chapters. And it was really, really interesting. I think, you know, the people who do achieve PhD, you know, do it because they fall in love with their research. They become passionate about it. And Mm -hmm. I was fortunate enough that I'd found a subject that really resonated with me that I thought was absolutely fascinating. And Again, by accident, after seven years, I had a PhD, (laughs) you know, and you all know this, anyone who's been through the process, when you come across an obstacle, you think, oh, it's insurmountable, I can't do it, I'm going to give up. But actually, any obstacles, we have to go over, under, round or through. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) And one way or another, often uh, with the help of someone else to say, you can do it, you know, don't give up. This might help you. Have a look here, you know, and with the help of our supervisors, we get through it. And so I don't consider myself to be a driven person. Other people might disagree. I would think so. Yes. But for me, I'm not doing this for me. I'm doing this so that I can use what I know to help other people. And ever since I've known you, Fiona, it's always been a joyful endeavor as you work with people. I know when I trained with you under Thinking Styles, which is an incredible tool to use, especially as you're starting to explore your own authentic leadership, it really gives you a great set of tools to work from. It was such joy in everything that you did. So it was a delight learning from you. Well, you're very kind to say so. It's a delight to have you in the room and it's a delight to speak to you now, you know, realising that we've known each other for nearly 20 years. It is true. (laughs) It's quite wonderful. Well, and I really wanted to capture the work that you did because not only are your tools absolutely amazing and the concepts that you've developed really quite interesting, I think that what you've been able to do is link that into an academic approach very strongly. It really does create a very robust set of tools that you work with and from as you continue to move forward in your career. Well, thank you. It's so important, I think, to develop things that are robust academically. Certainly in the UK, you know, we're finding that businesses and public sector organisations, they want to work uh, with evidence-based tools. Correct. They want to use the best things that are around and they want to use things that work. And it's only by having that evidence and by taking a rigorous approach to developing tools and models and things that we can really say, yes, this does work. It's based in psychology. This is where the theory comes from. This is how we can use it practically. These are the benefits. And that's the way that we create this body of evidence. Right. It's an exciting field to be in. It really is. What has it been like to practice in this field of cognitive fitness in 2020 in the UK? Any kind of um, psychology or consultancy in 2020 
has in a way been turned on its head in the sense that before everything was face-to-face and of course now we're face-to-face virtually. Right. And in some ways it's no different to the work that I've always done. But before where I used to work on the telephone, for example, to give feedback and do coaching, you know, now we're just using different methods of doing it. The difference in 2020 for me, I think is the levels of uncertainty and the levels of discomfort and fear around the global pandemic have meant that people's attention has been affected, people's focus has been affected, people are focusing on surviving rather than thriving. Mm. And so I think we are all having to be more resilient. Now, the interesting thing that's happening now is that whilst we are still in a global pandemic, people are becoming a bit fed up with surviving, not thriving. And people have survived. So they realise we're not in as much danger, perhaps, as we were before. A lot of people have already had COVID. Of course, we've got long COVID as well, which is affecting some people's health in a variety of different ways. But I think there's now an appetite to begin to learn more. They're a bit fed up with stagnating. Right. People want to get back to normal, whatever normal means. But normal means learning. Normal means change. Normal means professional and personal development. And I think that's what people want to get back to. Well, and that's a little bit why we started this podcast on dynamic competence, to explore how people are learning and learning to be competent in this constantly changing world that we're in and touching upon all the different tools and disciplines that are out there that we could find to kind of share that as possibilities for people to engage as they're coming up with a way of shifting from surviving to thriving and really moving into a space that emphasizes dynamic competence. So I'm glad that we've been able to talk to you about that. It's really fun to have this conversation. We're stopping the interview here to give us a chance to digest some of what Fiona was talking about and to prepare for the incredible second half of the interview on authentic leadership. When I shared the interview with my brother, Thomas May, he got really excited to explore her interview more deeply. So I asked Tom to join me in a summary chat about this first half of the interview. So welcome back, Tom. Hey, Susan. Good to be back. So why don't you talk about one of the elements you found interesting in the first half of Fiona's interview? A lot of very interesting aspects of what she had said. One that particularly stood out is the concept of the leadership needing to be pro-social. First off, I like that term pro-social. Well, what does that term mean to you? Well, for sure, it's about looking at your people and understanding what it is needed to build them up to make them a better self. And it's from a leadership viewpoint, you see that. Yes, definitely from a leadership component. But then remembering, too, that this transition is not only at work, but in social circles and then even in within your own family. So this concept of pro-social and really being mindful of the individuals that are out there and the circumstances that they're in and how you interact with them and, and you can help support and build them up make this work to be dynamically competent, to drive in that direction, you need to come from a place that is focused on the people and not from an egocentric construct. 
And I agree with you. And an interesting component is that if you're coming from an egocentric, it's about you as the leader, rather than making sure everybody's the best we all can be, you begin to do things that don't benefit the people around you. You're doing things that benefit you. And as a result, you're not really looking at the impact of what you're doing on everything else. So I'm intrigued with it because this feedback loop gets created when you're starting to look at your actions in terms of impact on others. And they, of course, give you responses back to what works and what doesn't work. So I think that's an interesting piece that builds in that feedback loop rather than being completely focused on oneself. Correct. And I really appreciated your question to Fiona when you asked her, is that an either or thinking? And she came back and said, well, in her perspective, she believed that you can't be egocentric and still think of your people. And so that could be up for debate, but I would have to concur with her that if you are considering your people first and you happen to have a benefit that comes to you as a resultant, then I would think you probably aren't coming at this from an egocentric, but you do have a benefit. Right, it doesn't exclude the benefit, but at the same time, you have to be coming at it from the perspective of the other people. I agree that nuance is so critical to really have to struggle with day to day. What's driving this? What unconscious pieces and what parts of the hierarchy are driving this for me? Yeah, absolutely. Because in business, you can get to an end result is what you wanted, but what path did you take and who did you run over to get there? And I being a little verbose on that term, but at times, if you view it as egocentric and you drive to a resultant without regards to the people, you can still get there. But what damage have you done? Uh, what have you left on the table in the sense of building up a team to perform better in the future? Right. That's the old adage of the ends don't justify the means. Absolutely. That was a good section. I liked how Fiona couched that. Great. Did you have another component that you really liked? So I think the other one that really I picked up on was the thinking drives behavior, which then drives value. What did you think? What I love about that really is how we think translate into our behaviors And so the behaviors are what we do day to day and what happens around us, what we create. And those are seen by others as really what we value, what you do, not what you say. And so as you have these behaviors, they demonstrate your values to others. And I think what is as important is they also reinforce, our behaviors reinforce our values. There are ways in which we're telling ourselves these are important things that we're doing. Yeah, absolutely. And that is the genuine component that as a leader, the people you are leading, they see that. If you are not genuine, meaning your behaviors do not mimic your words, then the values that are created there are going to be fragile. They're not going to be consistent and people will question them. But when your behavior mimics your words and it's in a true engaging environment, then that will build the values. And of course, that leads directly into the next part of the interview, which is all about authentic leadership, that you don't get authenticity without trust and you don't get trust without those things being in alignment. Your thinking, your behavior and your values have to be in alignment with that. I would absolutely agree with you. Good. I really like this concept that Fiona presented on her ability to create this incredible tool called Thinking Styles only could have occurred by her thinking outside the paradigm of psychology. What did you hear in that? Two components that I heard. One was, 
if I had already been entrenched in these psychological constructs, you know, what was taught to me, I would have missed the bigger picture and the ability to see more and be able to expand. And, and I have said that so many times, training actually develops maps in your mind, but sometimes you have to be careful because those maps can actually keep you from seeing a potential solution. So always with anything, as you learn new components, you have to keep an open mind and a balance to what you know to find potential solutions. And I think so much of the creative process that I'm engaged with, as I mentioned in the interview, is that there's a problem to be solved, there's something to be created, and it kind of just arises in front of us. And we work at it and we work at it and we solve that problem. And as we solve that problem, we see that there's a pretty interesting solution then I go and I learn whatever the field is around that particular problem, what the academic theory and concepts are. And then once I tap into those, it gives me the structure to move it forward, to codify it, to figure out how to best measure it. And I go through it that way. And that to me really captures a creative process. I also look at it as a component of working backwards, just like Fiona said, it's that beginning with the end in mind. If you think about it, you're trying to get to a solution that may have never been developed for or had steps to get you there, or even the background information or the data or the, the physical processes to get you to that step. But knowing where you want to be and working backwards allows you to ask questions that you probably wouldn't ask to say, well, how do I get there? What would it take to get there? That type of open-minded thought is what brings up innovation. That's what brings up new solutions that people haven't thought about. And then what you do is once you start to figure out, oh, wait a minute, I'm going to need X, Y, and Z, then you go back and study more up in that area saying, I might have to have a new tool here. I might have to new methodology here. I can go back and learn that methodology then to use it to then see if I can get to that end state that I'm trying to. And it makes me also think back to your podcast, Tom, when you talked about when you're working on the floor and you're trying to document whatever it is, the process that needs to be documented. If you don't know what that process is, you always bring an expert in standing next to you so that you basically have the best of both worlds. You have your fresh eyes on it and you have an expert who can also explain components to it. And as long as you stay very conscious of your need to have new eyes and to ask those probing questions, then that may also be a nice situation that allows you to come up with this new solution. Correct. Exactly. Again, what you're doing is you're rallying the forces to help figure this out. And the more options you can balance, the more options you can see, the potential for finding the solution will just be at a higher percentage. And I guess that again gets back to what we call the art of dynamic competence. It's really that artful approach we need to come up with change. And in the process of coming up with change, we have to find these very concrete new bits of information. And as Fiona mentions, see the pattern of them. And those of us who practice the art of dynamic competence tend to be very good at finding patterns. And when we teach it to others, it's helping them begin to see that it's not about the detail. Often it's the ability to see a pattern arising in front of you. It's kind of like the concept in mindfulness that to make change, you must have resources around you. You must have physically resources in you 
to be able to deal with a given situation. If you were lacking resources, you just may not have the energy to do it. And so anytime you're putting yourself in that situation of having resources around you, that ability to then be able to see it and deal with it is at a lot higher level. Great. That's a really good way of looking at it. Well, the last one that I really found interesting was as we were finishing up this first part of the interview is Fiona's emphasis on going beyond just surviving and moving into thriving and how she really equated that with learning processes. How do you feel about that, Tom? Well, I think in today's times, in all changing times, but especially when times are unbelievably rough, where we have issues going on that may even be worldwide issues, our ability to move from surviving to thriving is the goal, is to understand that I can be in the midst of complete chaos, but figure out a way to how to move from just feeling like I'm just surviving to I actually can thrive some. And that thriving is our lifeblood. It is the energy that comes back to us to reinvigorate us, to build ourselves up, to move forward. And if we are in a constant survival mode, we are just tearing ourselves down. And we have to find the mechanisms to bring us out of that world and allow us to start getting small wins, to get some components of thriving so we get reinvigorated. Agreed. And I think that's a lot of what we've been teaching and working with in Dynamic Competence for a long time is how to help people see that. And I think some of the other interviews will show pieces of that and for everyone to stay aware what those elements are that allow people to shift into that thriving mode. What were the little things that they did that helped them move? And I think asking that question and thinking about that as we talk to all the folks that we'll be talking to is a really important component. I agree. Well, good. Is there anything else in it that you were really interested in? For this section one, I think we did a very good job of covering the key points and driving it. I'm real excited to move into the second part of this podcast because she takes a lot of these concepts and she drives down into a little bit more detail on how you actually can execute and the things you need to be looking for. And I'm excited to talk about the next podcast. Well, great. Well, why don't we end here and in two weeks, we'll start up on the next one with Fiona and present that to everybody. Good. Looking forward to it, Susan. Thanks. I want to again share a heartfelt thanks for all that have joined us for this first season of our podcast on the art of dynamic competence. I'm incredibly grateful that you've shared some of your day with us. I know your time is precious, and I hope that we've been able to share some interesting perspectives through our exploration of dynamic competence. If you have any thoughtful comments or criticisms, please email us at artofdynamiccompetence at gmail.com. That's artofdynamiccompetence, one word, at gmail.com. If you like this podcast, please leave us a five-star rating on whatever app you use to listen. And do tell colleagues, friends, and family about us. This is Susan Clark for The Art of Dynamic Competence. Thank you so much for listening.